Hello, Jimbo speaking. Welcome to our weekly listener-supported Hello, Jimbo Speaking podcast. Today, Jimbo will be sharing another one of his super impactful stories from the front lines of ministry, the next provocative installment of Inside Jimbo's Head, and a brand new Laugh with a Punch one-minute comedy sketch from Lifeline Productions. Hey, Jimbo, why don't you fill in our listeners with the details? Thanks, Riri. I'm really looking forward to this episode. With Hershimer and Haha gone to visit Haha's parents, we should have some smooth sailing. However, Amazing Alan has anything but smooth sailing when he tries to hold on to things he should have discarded in this week's one-minute comedy skit with a punch from Lifeline Productions. Then there is the story from the front lines of ministry. In this story, we will see how God can use even the craziest things to help a young man move away from an evil lifestyle into the life of a disciple of Jesus. You know, Riri, I am amazed at how many people who say they are followers of Jesus continue to hold on to the very things Jesus told those who wanted to follow him to leave behind. As I take us into the getting down to the nitty-gritty section of our study on cultural Christianity versus kingdom Christianity, we continue with an intensified study of an extremely powerful and radical section of Scripture. Like the young man in the story from the front lines of ministry, Paul was one who moved away from every aspect of his old life. In fact, Paul called everything from his old life doggy-do that he scraped off his shoe in following Jesus. There is a powerful lesson in that for all of us who have grown up in this modern age's conventional culturized church. So please, Riri, help us get going. I can't wait to get into this important episode. It may even turn some of our listeners' lives inside out and upside down. Okay, Jimbo. As I said before, folks, this is the listener-supported Hello, Jimbo Speaking podcast. Your host is Jim Warren, author, motivational speaker, pastor, teacher, high-risk youth advocate, and life coach. But most of all, he's an all-around wild and crazy guy. So, without any further ado, from behind a cheap microphone in the dynamic life development studios in the thriving metropolis of Wheatfield, Indiana. Okay, I guess if you count all the heads of corn and soybeans, you can call it a thriving metropolis. Here's Jimbo! Okay, okay, and away we go. However, before we get into the story and the comedy skit for today's episode, I want to remind you of a few very important things. But hey, hey, wait a minute. What is this? Wow, I just found a letter on my desk from Hershimer. It looks like Riri brought the mail in early today. Let's see what old Hirsch has to say, shall we? Dear Jimbo and Riri, Haha and Hershimer having so much fun, we decide to stay few more weeks. Haha family, nice Jimbo. They like Hershimer. We will have big surprise for Jimbo and Riri when Hershimer and Haha get home. Bet you be surprised, Jimbo. See you then. Wow. Could it be? Nah. Well, at least we will have a few more weeks of uninterrupted bliss. 
So let's get on with that information I wanted to share with you. First, I want to remind you of the brand new look for the jimbospeaking.org website. Here you can find past episodes of both the podcast and the Digging Deeper into Jimbo's Head broadcasts. You can also find transcripts of the Inside Jimbo's Head segment of each podcast, past recordings of each story from the front lines of ministry, and much, much more. So be sure to check it out. It really looks great. While listening to this podcast, please click the subscription button and also become a support partner. We ask less than any other ministry I know. Monthly support starts at 99 cents per month. Every dollar raised goes to help support my ministry to disconnected higher-risk youth. I guarantee you the impact in their lives is worth 99 cents per month. In fact, if you do the $4.99 or even the $9.99 per month, even those amounts are well worth the impact and less than most ministries ask of you. Also, don't forget that this Friday night, Dr. James Randolph and Joel Heim will join me in the Friday night live broadcast of Digging Deeper Inside Jimbo's Head. Here you can bring your questions and even your disagreements for us to discuss. Finally, be sure to check out the DLD Publishing website at dldpublishing.com, where you can find the lowest prices on all my books and other publications. Be sure to check out my newest book, Invested, a personal journey from an event message ministry model into the attitude of Jesus. So now, let's let Father rock our world with this week's episode of Stories from the Front Lines of Ministry, where a little caca helped a young man understand Jesus. Yes, I said caca. So here is caca and conversion, along with the one-minute comedy skit with a punch, Amazing Allen and the Beehive, all followed by this week's installment of Inside Jimbo's Head. And now, stories from the front lines of ministry. You know, my friends, God uses a lot of different things to draw people to himself. And today, we're going to hear how a bad-sounding word helped a young man understand just how much God loves him. into the juvenile detention center one day. The lead staff person greeted me. Jimbo, would you please visit the young man in the observation room? He is really struggling with his faith. Sure, I replied. 
All I can tell you is that he has been in a lot of trouble lately, warned the shift supervisor. That last statement made sense to me because they only put a young person in the observation room if they need to keep a special eye on them. They buzzed me through to the hall, which ran in front of the room where the young man sat. I stood in front of the door. Putting my hand on the glass in that door, I greeted the young man. Hey, buddy. Immediately, the young man sat up on the edge of his bed. He knew what the hand on the window meant, and he immediately replied with the same gesture on his side of the window. I hear things have been hard, and you have been making them even worse, I said with an inquisitive inflection in my voice. Damn straight, he replied with his eyes staring a hole in the floor. I don't have a lot of time right now, so I'll get to the point. Has anyone ever talked to you about Jesus? I am usually not as forward in a first meeting, sometimes not in the second or the third, but I felt I was on good ground with this young man. Yeah, my Grams. She talks about him all the time. I even go to church, and I prayed. I pray now to get out of this mess. He was still looking down at the floor. I heard something the other week I think might help, I offered. Okay, was the only reply. Have you heard about Jesus being crucified? You know, like, on the cross, I asked. Sure, the preacher at her church talks about it all the time. I then asked, do you think he was alone? No, no, there were two other guys, like two robbers or something. He looked up from the floor with a big smile, like he just found the prize in the Cracker Jack box. Yeah, but they were more than robbers. One of the words used to describe them comes from a base Greek word that sounds a lot like kaka. The young man began to laugh so much I saw the detention officer look over to see if everything was all right. You got it, man, I continued. That word carries the same sense as our kaka. They were base, dirty, evil men. The Bible tells us they both started making fun of Jesus, but one of them got really bad. He started cursing and swearing and calling Jesus all kinds of names. The young man sat with his eyes wide open like saucers of milky glowing light in a dark sky. Has anyone told you about me? He exclaimed with astonishment. No, I replied honestly. My friend used to do that all the time. I would get so mad. Well, that is what the guy on the other side of Jesus did too, I told him. He told the other evil guy to be quiet. He told the foul-mouthed guy that the two of them deserved their punishment, but Jesus, Jesus was innocent. He then asked Jesus to remember him. But he was an evil guy too, wasn't he? The young man asked. Sure was. But even in his evilness, he turned to Jesus, acknowledging his evil, and asked Jesus to remember him. The young man's mouth turned into the biggest smile you can imagine. That's what I want. I need Jesus to forgive me and remember me. Preacher, will you pray with me? I looked him straight in the eye and asked him a series of counting the cost questions. He explained exactly what each of his replies meant. I have to say, I have never heard a person go through those questions and give such heartfelt, teary-eyed responses. I then encouraged the young man to talk to God about all we had just discussed. Will you pray first, preacher, came his reply. I put my head down and asked the Lord to lead me. I looked up at him and said, maybe you should talk to him first and then I will finish. The young man put his hand on the window. I followed suit. God, he cried, 
God save me, I have screwed up so bad. I know you must hate all the evil things I have done, like those two guys who were crucified with Jesus. I am evil, Jesus. Please forgive me. I know you died in my place. Please, please, please. I need you to change me, Lord. I am ready now. I mean, really ready now. Help me to be what I should be. Bring me into your kingdom and Please, Lord, let me be a part of the work of your kingdom. I looked up. Tears streamed down his face. I smiled at him. Your turn, preacher, he insisted. I tell you, young man, I replied. After that, you have said it all. There is nothing I can add. I know Jesus heard you and will remember you. The question is, will you remember him? Yes, he replied enthusiastically. Yes, I will, preacher. Will you come see me again? Sure, but you have to do me one favor. What's that, preacher? They call me Jimbo around here. Just call me Jimbo. He smiled, putting his hand on the window and said, Sure, Jimbo. I returned the hand on the window and left. The class I did after that was great, but I just couldn't get that young man out of my mind. When I returned the next day to visit him, the young man had already been transferred out to another facility. It's strange working in a juvenile detention center. Because of confidentiality issues, I don't get the kids' names, where they're from, not even a telephone number. That makes it hard sometimes to follow up. But one thing I know for sure, the Holy Spirit could do a much better job following up with this young man than I ever could. I'll be back in a moment. Amazing Alan Meadow Scene, take one. Are you ready, Alan? You got it, guys. And action. Amazing Alan will now attempt to remove a handful of honey from a giant Mongolian beehive to show how dangerous it is to fool with temptation. No problem. I know how to put bees to sleep. Nee, 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 Amazing nee, Alan thinks she has a plan to handle this situation, just as we often feel we can handle any temptation if we're careful. Pretty good, huh, guys? I guess Alan can handle this situation after all. Normally, if not dealt with properly, temptation will lead to sin, which leads to pain and separation from God. And your arm could get stuck. Excuse me? No problem. Just a small tug and... Once again, as Alan disappears across the meadow, he is illustrating the most effective way the Bible gives us for dealing with temptation. Run. Another message from Lifeline Productions, the comic strip of radio at lifelinepro.com. open up Jimbo's head one more time. (laughs) I think I have to come up with a new sound for when my head opens. What do you think? You know, I'm always amazed at how when I ask counting the cost questions to people interested in Jesus, they become far more serious about the whole subject. In fact, 
If they can make it through these questions like the young man from this episode's stories from the front lines of ministry, their conversion always flows through the biblical realities of repentance, atonement, lordship, kingdom, and service. This happens without me ever having to hand-feed them a prayer that focuses on these terms. And those I get to follow up with and disciple? Well, let's just say, discipling a person who understands conversion as repentance, relationship, and redirection under the lordship of Jesus never becomes an exercise in pulling teeth. I bring this up because our study from the last episode, this episode, and the next one is a lead-in to this series' entire final section. Here, we will get down into the nitty-gritty of cultural Christianity versus kingdom Christianity. However, it is also a lead-in to the very first portion of the nitty-gritty section when we will discuss the difference between how cultural Christianity and kingdom Christianity deal with both becoming a disciple of Jesus and growing in Him. Then there was the great one-minute comedy skit from Lifeline Productions. There is a huge problem when we do not come face-to-face with the counting the cost questions. We do not follow the example of Paul which we find in the passage we are studying. Instead, we end up with our arms stuck in a Mongolian beehive trying to hold on to the honey. Why is this a problem? We can't hold on to the honey of this world and live in the kingdom at the same time. Very few people from the conventional culturized church have ever considered the counting the cost questions. Thus, that picture of an arm stuck in a Mongolian beehive pretty much is the way I believe Father sees today's church. There is a solution better than running, which was Amazing Allen's solution. The correct solution is taking all things in their entirety into account and taking authority over them. We must do this by considering them as damage, lost, and a detriment to our new life in Christ. If we truly compare the things and ways of this world to the benefit of a partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom, we will throw them away as a healed lame man throws away his crutches. But hey, I get ahead of myself. So let's just start our next installment looking at the radical attitude and actions of kingdom Christianity as exemplified by Paul and recorded in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. radical attitude and actions of kingdom Christianity exemplified in Paul's attitude found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. But before I get into verse 8 and beyond, I want to remind you of the things we looked at in last episode of Inside Jimbo's Head. I promise it will be quick. Okay, okay, quit laughing. I really mean it this time. Okay, I promise I will at least try. First, I made a very strong case that each of us must realize that it is never a take-it-or-leave-it proposition when the scriptures teach us through example. Nor can we say any people, including Jesus, were so unique we cannot live as they lived. Nor can we say exemplified teaching does not apply to us because of the cultural differences between our day and their day. 
In our case today, the truths taught through example, Paul's attitude and actions found in Philippians chapter 3, are as binding on us as didactic teaching or even direct commands. The second thing I shared with you is the concept behind what I call my intensified version of Scripture. As I stated in the last episode, I first developed these for my time of quiet communion with the persons of the Trinity as I contemplatively meditated upon God's Word. However, I soon found out that serious students of the Word who are willing to take the time find them very helpful in capturing the Greek language's full, robust nature. I even took you through a very short, simplified explanation of Greek verbs. I hope that during the last episode, you downloaded a copy of the transcript of that installment of Inside Jimbo's Head. At the end of the transcript, I added both a full copy of my intensified version of Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, and a complete copy of the work I did to intensify those passages. If you did not do that or can't find your copy from the last episode, you must go to jimbospeaking.org before continuing with this episode. Once there, click the Episodes button at the bottom of the landing page and download the transcript for Episode 15. I know it will be well worth your while. After introducing you to my intensified version of these passages, I outlined what Paul said in these verses to the Philippians. Remember, even though Paul did not write these passages directly to us, they definitely were written for us. When we finally opened up verse 7, I pointed out how Paul's attitude described in these passages is a classic example of a person giving up one thing, or in Paul's case, all things, to participate in something of a higher and more exceptional value. We saw examples of this from everyday life and throughout the scriptures in the New Covenant. These examples included the teachings of Jesus. It is also important to realize that the passages we are studying do not stand in a vacuum. In them, Paul showed us how the attitude of Jesus he shared in Philippians chapter 2, the attitude of a self-emptying, self-sacrificial, obedient servant, had become Paul's attitude. Everything here points to how we are to have the same attitude and how Christ's attitude should affect our lives in the same way it affected Paul's life. If you don't believe that, you need to read the verses shortly after the ones we are studying in which Paul commands the Philippians, and thus us, to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Please notice, he did not say, keep your ears open and listen to them, but keep your eyes upon them who walk according to the example you have in us. It's the difference between teaching and training. But hey, that's for another time and day. In verse 7, we saw how it was the attitude of Christ, now in Paul, that caused him to take authority over and walk away from his Jewish religion, including his entire cultural reality. Today, we will see how he treated everything in his life other than his relationship with Christ in the exact same way. Why? All these things were damaged and lost. Why? They were worthless compared to the benefit of the participation he now has with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. On top of that, they were actually a detriment to this relationship, this partnership. Have you ever thought of it in that way? Man, I hope so after last episode. 
Next in that last episode, I went over the specifics of how I came to this translation and these conclusions. You will never understand these things unless you study the appendix I added at the end of the transcription of episode 15. In fact, if you have not listened to episode 15 yet, you must go back and listen to at least the Inside Jimbo's Head segment before we press on into verse 8 and beyond today. Then came the most important part. I finalized this teaching by asking you a series of questions that I constructed to make you think about your life in light of these passages. You can't simply learn what the scriptures say, nor can you simply go out and do them. You must internalize them, let them become a part of your inner person, and thus become your way of life as you live and walk in the Spirit. But more on that in upcoming episodes. I will also ask you questions at the end of today's episode. Actually, they are my counting the cost questions. So prepare yourself as we begin looking at verse 8 and hopefully beyond. Do not let the ugly monster of rationalistic intellectualism drive you away from the real purpose of God's Word. What is that real purpose? It is simply, yet profoundly, living the transformed life that comes from being in Christ and being a part of His kingdom. Why? So you can spread Christ's authority, His kingdom, as God's image bearers as your one and only destiny in the years you have left in this age. Verse 8 takes us even deeper into the effect Christ's attitude had on Paul's attitude and lifestyle. As we said in the last episode, this strong effect upon Paul's lifestyle flowed from his partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. It was also because of that partnership relationship with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom that Paul made these dramatic lifestyle changes. However, in verse 8, Paul gives us an even deeper look into this relationship, this partnership with Christ. Here he gives us an additional and completely different effect on how he lived his life. So, let's dig in, shall we? To get started, I would like to read verses 7 and 8 in the English Standard Version. In verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In verse 8, Paul takes us even deeper when he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, before we break down verse 8, I would like to make a very important observation. The more I study and internalize this important section of the New Covenant, the more aware I become that Paul wrote these things as if he was conducting a symphony. As Paul conducted this symphony, he led his orchestra of words into an ever-increasing crescendo about his lifestyle in Christ. It is as if each new thought, each new phrase is the joining of one more instrument group sounding forth, creating an even greater magnitude of sound. As the new instrument group joins, those who have already played continue, yet they sound forth with even greater intensity. As this symphonic sound saturates your inner person, it forms a resonance that reaches its fullest, its most robust, complete impregnation of your inner person in verse 10. Take a moment and think about that, and please keep this in mind as we move forward. 
the first critical concept for us to look at in verse 8 is the very first word. Wow, you don't need a doctorate in biblical languages and exegesis to come up with that conclusion, do you? The English Standard Version translates this first word as indeed. Most readers do not pay close enough attention to this word. Other translations use phrases such as what is more or more than that, yes, more certainly, and but indeed. These translations are a little more accurate than the English Standard Version in that they use a phrase instead of one word. Why is this more accurate? What the ESV translates as one word, indeed, is actually a phrase made up of three Greek words. However, none of these translations catch the full essence of this Greek phrase, though more than that, used by the Berean Study Bible, comes the closest. Yet even it still misses the mark. The first Greek word in this phrase is a form of the word meaning different. The second word, according to Thayer's lexicon, means nay, rather. And the third word, according to Strong's definitions, carries with it the sense of an accumulative force. Thus, the full force of what Paul is saying speaks of different things than those he just mentioned in verse 7. It is not a continuation of Paul counting and taking authority over his religious and cultural background, but additional things added to those in an accumulative way. The sense here is that Paul is saying, I have not said enough. I have even more to add to this list of what I have taken account of and taken authority over. The fact that Paul uses three Greek words to get this point across tells us just how serious and important these next things are to his attitude and his lifestyle. Remember, this is the attitude and lifestyle he will soon command the Philippians, and thus us, to emulate. The next word we need to look at is the word count in the phrase, I count. This is the same Greek word Paul used in verse 7 when he said, I counted. However, this time, Paul changes the tense and thus the aspect of that word. You must remember in the minds of both those writing in biblical Greek and reading it, the aspect, the kind of action the verb insinuates is far more important than the point in time when the action took place. Yet, English has no way of communicating this most important part of the biblical Greek language in a short, succinct style. Remember my intensified version of these verses? It was far from anything but short and succinct. Yet if you listened carefully, you got a great sense of the robust nature of the language used by Paul. If you didn't catch it when I read the intensified version, you will as we go through verse 8. When Paul uses the word translated count, the formation of the verb describes a continuous habitual action that forms a lifestyle. In verse 7, he used the perfect tense, which describes a completed action in the past whose results continue into the present day. Thus, Paul took account of and took authority over his old religious and cultural way of life once and for all in the past. The results of that action continued to affect him at the time he was writing to the Philippians. But now, in the present, he is continuously, habitually, and as a lifestyle, taking account and authority over something in addition, in an accumulative way, to those things. 
I hope you can see by that one example how understanding the aspect of a verb's tense can communicate very important information. How do we know he is taking account of an authority over these other things? We learned in verse 7 that this Greek word translated count has a more robust meaning than just counting a number of some factors or simply taking some things into account. In the last episode, I told you this word carries within it the sense of taking command with official authority and to have the rule over something. What are these other things Paul is taking authority over and ruling over in the same manner as he did his old religious and cultural way of life? What is Paul presently, continuously, habitually as a lifestyle taking authority over and now ruling over? The ESV says everything. Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize that everything means every single thing. But again, The Greek leaves no doubt of this reality. Strong's definitions tells us this word means everything, the whole. Thayer's lexicon tells us it means the whole, altogether, in all ways, in all things, in all respects. However, Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words tells us this carries a very radical meaning of every kind and variety. Did you catch that word, radical? See, I'm not the only one who uses such an extreme expression. Thus, Paul leaves no doubt that those things which in verse 7 he took account of and took authority over as something damaged and a loss, as well as a detriment to his relationship with Christ, were not the only things he left behind. Not only did he in the past once and for all take authority over his old religious and cultural ways, but he now, as a lifestyle, accounts for and rules over all things. He uses a specific word here that means the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality. Again, it means in a very radical way, all or the whole of every single thing. Now, is there any question in your mind that Paul meant all things to mean all things? He will soon command the Philippians and thus us who are in Christ to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You know, my friends, I could stop right here. And if you have any sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, if you are truly in Christ, your world, as mine was, will be turned upside down and inside out. There is no doubt of that. If you are part of the true people of God, as Paul defined in verse 3, you would no longer have any desire to live the American dream, or according to the standards of your American culture or any other culture than that of the kingdom of God. Now, here is the most interesting thing I find about this word, everything, when we keep it in the context of these passages. This concept is, in all actuality, an embellishment on the idea of put no confidence in the flesh, which Paul uses to define back in verse 3, the true circumcision or the true people of God in the new covenant. Think about that. And you have always wondered why I put so much emphasis on how our American cultural goals can destroy our walk and work in Jesus' kingdom. Hmm. Well, this is a very obvious reason for anybody who has ears to hear. But maybe, just maybe, all of this does not turn your world inside out and upside down. 
maybe, just maybe, you need a little more help for such a radical transformation to take place in your direction and lifestyle. Paul continues to add to this crescendo of these verses with one more intensifying instrument group as he conducts his life symphony. Why was Paul willing to rule over all these things, including his entire old religious and cultural way of life? Why was he willing to take authority over all and rule over all the whole of every kind and variety of thing in their totality? Why did he see these things as something damaged and a loss as well as a detriment to being a part of God's covenant people? In verse 7, Paul tells us it was because of his new relationship, his new partnership with Jesus and his kingdom. But in verse 8, he once again takes even this reality to a whole new level, giving us a much more clear picture of that partnership and relationship. Paul unequivocally clarifies the reason he ruled over his old religious life and cultural lifestyle. He clarifies why once and for all in the past he did such a thing. In fact, what he is about to write is also what his transformed lifestyle flowed from in the past and continues to flow from in his present. He clarifies why he now sees those things as damaged and loss and a detriment to his partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. Let me emphasize this one more time. Paul unequivocally clarifies why now, in the present, he continuously, habitually as a lifestyle continues to do the same with the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality that he spoke of doing with his religious and cultural past. Here is the key to living out the attitude of Jesus in the same way Jesus and Paul lived out that attitude. The answer is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, my friends, even in the English translation of that phrase, you hear the ringing of a clarion bell if you are at all interested in following Jesus. Yet again in the Greek, it defines not only the worth of knowing Christ, but also what Paul meant by the term knowing Christ. Here, Paul speaks of knowing Christ as something of supreme, superior, surpassing worth. While it is very legitimate to translate the Greek here as surpassing worth, the word carries with it the concept of something better, something higher, something that is supreme in the life of Paul. The verb worth is also in the present tense, emphasizing that this supremacy is the continuous habitual supremacy of knowing Christ in Paul's transformed lifestyle. And us? We are to imitate this picture which Paul so clearly and specifically is painting before our very eyes. But what does Paul mean by knowing Christ? Many people speak of having a personal relationship with Jesus. If you break it down or help them break down what they mean by such a thing, you begin to see a huge problem compared to Paul's meaning here. Often, the average person means that at some point in their life, they theologically agreed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and this led them to yield their life to him so that he might forgive them of their sins. If you ask why Jesus did such a thing, nine times out of ten, you will hear something like, so that I can go to heaven when I die, or so I can have a relationship with God and have a better life. Now, I would never take away from that. 
But Paul speaks of something far more profound, something far more earth-shattering, something far more life-transforming than just that concept. There are several Greek words for knowing something or someone. One, Ido definitely means to understand through mental comprehension. Yet Paul uses the word gnosis. This is the noun form of the Greek verb gnosko. Strong's definitions tells us this word signifies to know, to be aware of, to feel, to perceive, to be sure, to understand. Obviously, this is much more than simple comprehension. Yet theirs tells us it means to know, to understand, to perceive, to have intimacy with, to become acquainted with. Once again, the idea of comprehension is here, but is pushed far beyond the realm of intellectual understanding. But now enters Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. Here we learn that this word indicates a relationship between the person knowing and the object known. In this relationship, what is known is of greater value to the one who is knowing it. Thus, this is why the relationship is established. But Vine goes even further. He informs us this word also conveys the thought of connection or physical union as between a man and a woman. Boy, talk about intimacy. Because of these things, when I put this word into my intensified versions, I always talk about a full, complete, intimate, experiential understanding. Thus, we learn that Paul accounted for and took authority over his past religious and cultural life and the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality because of a partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. But that is not all. He counted his past religious and cultural way of life, as well as the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality, as damaged and lost, as well as a detriment to this partnership. But my friends, the music continues to swell with majestic intensity. Paul now describes his partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom as the supreme superior worth of a full, complete, intimate, experiential, relational partnership, which is of the greatest significance and preeminence to him. Boy, does that sound to you what the average person means when they say they have a personal relationship with Jesus? How about you? Is that the kind of relationship you have with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom? Most of us don't even think of the Messiah's kingdom when we think about our atonement. But again, we will get to that in a few more episodes. So, at this point, we might think Paul has said absolutely everything he could say about his past religious cultural way of life, as well as the whole of every kind and variety of thing in their totality. But this musician is not done composing and conducting his symphony. This painter has far more vibrant colors to add to his palette. Why? To express how important, how preeminent, how supreme his existing relationship is with Messiah Jesus his Lord and Jesus' kingdom compared to the whole of every kind and variety of things. Here is what Paul says in the last portion of verse 8 from the English Standard Version. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. First, the phrase, I have suffered the loss, is one word in Greek. This word, translated as a phrase, is the same word Paul used in verse 7 and in the first phrase of verse 8, which the ESV translated as loss. 
Remember, this word conveys the concept of damaged loss and a detriment. But now the maestro has the orchestra increased the crescendo exponentially. Here, the painter uses even more intense, vivid colors with a more expressive stroke of his brush. What causes me to say such a thing? For the first time, Paul uses this word in this verb form instead of its noun form. This verb is in the Eros tense, that when coupled with an indicative mood is always a past tense and represents a one-time single action that took place successfully and effectively in the past. The aspect of the Eros tense is key to these verses. Remember, this action is like a snapshot from the past. Yet the reason I made the statement about the increased crescendo and the even more vibrant, intense colors and more expressive strokes of the brush is that for the first time in our three verses, Paul puts a verb in the passive voice. Now, the passive voice means that the subject, Paul, was acted upon by an outside force. Paul was the recipient of the action and did not initiate the action or participate in making it happen. In all other verbs we have looked at so far, Paul uses either the middle voice or the active voice. These voices indicated an action that the subject initiated and, in the middle voice, participates in the action. But not here. Here, Paul does not take the initiative, but is acted upon by an outside force. So, what did this outside force cause to happen in Paul's life? When the word for loss is used in its verb form, it still has the basic meaning of damaged loss and a detriment. However, as a verb, it carries the sense of forfeiting what is or was of the greatest value. Yet that greatest thing once valued now becomes something seen as damaged, lost, and a detriment. But remember, Paul did not, in this case, cause this to take place. An outside force initiated this action. What outside force? I think we would all like to say God. But our context does not hint at that, while it points to something more specific. What caused Paul to forfeit his great valued things? What caused Paul to forfeit his religious and cultural background? What caused Paul to forfeit the whole of every kind and variety of thing in their totality? Our context speaks of one very specific thing. It was the supreme, superior, surpassing worth of a full, complete, intimate, experiential, relational partnership with Messiah Jesus and His kingdom. The depth and intensity of this relational partnership became to Paul his new thing of greatest significance and preeminent importance. Now, my friends, I really want to end our discussion of verse 8, but the maestro is still composing and conducting, causing an even greater, more intense crescendo to take place. More and more instrument groups are joining the symphony. The, the artist brings even more dramatic flair to his brush, with even newer, more brilliant, vibrant colors erupting on his canvas. The question should come to all our minds, how did Paul respond to an outside force causing him to forfeit what had been his greatest valued things? Many of us would kick and scream and protest while trying to take them back. 
Is this how you would act if God took everything away from you? The answer to that question lies in how you respond to something being taken away from you by someone or something else. Still think you would act as Paul acted? Recently, I have seen many who name the name of Jesus kick and scream because they think their freedoms were being taken away from them during the COVID-19 pandemic. But not Paul. Not in this case. Actually, in any case, with anything, Paul would care less about what he lost from the things of this world or what a world system gave him. Remember, he had already tasted the supreme, superior, surpassing worth of a full, complete, intimate, experiential, relational partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. Not only that, but Paul found it to be of the greatest significance and to be of preeminent importance in his life. How about you? Does that sound like what you experience in your relationship with Messiah Jesus as you live in and by his kingdom and its culture? Is that relational partnership so preeminent in your life that when you lose something of this world, anything of this world, it would not affect how you live your life in Christ? Once again, Paul tells us that his only response was to begin to continually, habitually, as a lifestyle, account for these things and take authority over them as worthless, damage, loss, and a detriment. But that's not all. Here comes the largest crescendo so far. Right here, a whole other instrument group joins into the symphony. Right here, right now, the artist begins to flare his brush dramatically across the canvas with the most vibrant, realistic color he has added so far. Paul calls his old religious and cultural way of life and the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality, dung. That's right, dung. All these things turned off the apostle because of the surpassing supreme worth of his full, complete, intimate, experiential relational partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. He was so disgusted by them, he called these things dung. The apostle was so focused on his partnership and its full, complete, intimate, experiential, relational reality that all these old things simply turned into animal feces. He simply scraped them off his shoe and walked on. Wow. Oh, and remember, he did not grow into this attitude. It was his the moment he tasted of the supreme, superior, surpassing worth of his full, complete, intimate, experiential, relational partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. He just did it. Does that remind you of our brothers and sisters in Christ over in Iran? I hope so. And why did Paul do this? Why was this Paul's one and only continuous habitual lifestyle? He did this so that he might gain the Messiah Jesus and his kingdom as the dominating power over the entirety of his being and every circumstance. This meaning is the definition Vines gives of the phrase, I may gain. I do this so that I may gain. I could say more about this from a technical standpoint, but the clock has ticked down. 
and now is not the time nor place. You will see these things in the additional material found in the PDF transcript of the Inside Jimbo's Head, Episode 15. You see, my friends, now is the time and the place for me to ask the hard questions. Yet, before we get there, allow me to read you verse 7 and 8 in my intensified version, allowing you to receive a better understanding of the genius of this symphony and the utter brilliance of the painting. But whatever things were continuously taking place in the past, which gave me the benefit of an advantage, those things I have already in the past taken into account and have taken authority over them as something damaged and a detriment and a loss. I have in all certainty in the past considered them as damaged and a detriment and a loss in a way that continues to allow me to presently consider them as damaged, a detriment, and a loss. This has happened because of and through the benefit of a partnership with the Messiah and his kingdom. On top of those things, and added to them in an accumulative way, I am also now in all certainty as a lifestyle continuously, habitually taking into account and having authority over and considering all things, and I mean the whole of every kind and variety of thing in their totality, to be continuously, habitually damaged and a detriment, and a loss for the benefit of partnership in a continuous, habitual lifestyle in the supreme, superior surpassing worth of a full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of Messiah Jesus my Lord and his kingdom. It is because of and through this benefit of a partnership with him in this full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of him as Lord that I have already in the past, once and for all, with all certainty, forfeited and cast away all, and I mean the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality. In fact, I am now continuously, habitually, as a lifestyle, taking into account and having authority over them, considering them as worthless and detestable refuse like the excrement of animals. I do this continuously and habitually as a lifestyle to the end that I might gain the Messiah and his kingdom as the dominating power over my entire being and every circumstance. That should make much more sense to you now, and it should ring a clarion bell concerning the life you are living right now in Christ Jesus. You see, my friends, you are more than likely invited into conventional American culturized Christianity. This expresses itself in one of two hideous monstrosities. Those who were sucked into the vortex of this black hole come out as either legalists or waiting to be snatched into heaven. That's right legalistic consciousness, or easy believism. Maybe you live out a hybrid of both hideous monstrosities. Both find themselves in the easy believism camp and have never dealt with any counting the cost questions. In fact, they don't even talk about the kingdom of God much. If you are in that boat, and most of us are or have been, now is the time to answer those difficult questions Jesus would have asked you if you had come to him and asked to be his disciple and to enter his kingdom with him. Here are a few of those questions to ponder. 
Do you realize there is nothing you can do to earn your relationship with God and the forgiveness of your sins? Jesus paid it all. Yet when you commit to being a disciple of Jesus, it will bring you into a radically dynamic lifestyle change. Are you ready to radically give 100% of your life and everything you hold as supremely important to God right now without excuse or reservation? Here's a second question. Do you realize that as Jesus' disciple, you will move over a deep divide that will separate you from your old way of living? Are you ready to change your cultural norms, the basic ways you learned to live your life in the past? Are you willing without excuse or reservation to let go of your old culture and enter the culture of the kingdom of God no matter how different it is from the one in which you grew up? One more. Do you realize that as a disciple of Jesus, your allegiance must be solely to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and to his kingdom? Do you realize you must lay aside all allegiances to other human authorities and governments and solely see yourself as a part of God's government, the kingdom of God? Are you ready to obey and serve only his kingdom without excuse or reservation right now? Here's another question. Do you realize relationships change when you commit to living as a disciple of Jesus? Do you realize that this new lifestyle may very well separate you from many of your old friends, even many of your family members? Are you willing to walk away from them if necessary without excuse or reservation? How about this one, my friend? Do you realize that once you choose to be a disciple of Jesus, how you treat people must be different? Do you realize you will no longer focus on your own needs, but the needs of others? Do you realize you will no longer come first in your life, but God and all others will come before you? Are you ready to commit to this way of living without excuse or reservation? Do you realize that in committing to live as a disciple of Jesus, you may lay down your wants, your desires, your comforts, your dreams, your wishes, and your purposes? Do you realize you will exchange these things for obedient servanthood to God's purposes, desires, and will? Do you realize this will happen even if it means extreme self-sacrifice? Are you ready to make that commitment without excuse or reservation? Are you ready to enter life with God as a disciple of Jesus, obeying all that he commanded you to do throughout the new covenant found in the Bible, without excuse, reservation, or concern for the consequences? Are you ready to move into a new life as God's child, focused solely on living obediently to his purposes in community with him and other people? Now, my friends, I have very little time left, but if these questions sound too harsh to you, if they sound legalistic, one or more of a few things have happened to you. You may have never read through the Gospels in the Bible, and if you did, you were unwilling to obey what Jesus commanded of us, ignoring them as too radical for our present way of life. You may also have come into Christianity based on the premises of easy believism. Here you were told that the basis of a relationship with God is getting saved for the forgiveness of your sins so you can go to heaven when you die first, and then you can try to grow into these things. More than likely, both of these things have been your experience. But that is not biblical Christianity. That is not kingdom Christianity. It is conventional, culturized Christianity, which is a challenging counterfeit for the reality God has for his covenant people in this age. 
So, what are you going to do? Make more excuses? Keep on keeping on doing the same old, same old? Or are you going to let the supreme, superior, surpassing worth of a full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of Messiah Jesus as your Lord and His kingdom drive you to once and for all, with all certainty, forfeit and cast away all of the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality? Are you going to allow this to, right here, right now, continuously, habitually as a lifestyle, cause you to take into account and have authority over all things, considering them as worthless, detestable refuse, like the excrement of animal? Are you just going to scrape them off your shoe and walk on with Jesus? Will this include your old religious and cultural realities as well? Are you willing to let go of legalism? Are you willing to let go of simply trying to implement the scriptures in your life? Are you willing to turn your back on easy believism and its ugly stepsister, the I'll fly away mentality? Are you now, at this very moment, willing to have your life redirected under the full, complete lordship of Jesus? Are you willing to stop trying, to stop thinking about growing into this, and just do it? Will your allegiance be to and only to the kingdom of God? Will you walk away from all the political influences of your old allegiances? Are you tired of all the excuses? Why would you do such a radical, illogical thing? Well, let's see. How about so you might gain the Messiah and his kingdom as the dominating power over your entire being and every circumstance? Oh yes, there is the issue we will talk about in the next episode. So you might once and for all be discovered, be recognized, and show yourself as being in him, the Messiah, in his kingdom. In other words, so that you might be discovered and recognized and show yourself as wholly joined in such a way that he is the place where you live and move and the one whom your power and influence are subject. Just a little something to pique your interest in the next episode. Oh yes, what happens if you don't do this? Remember, Houston, we have a problem, or doesn't that really matter to you? So, let me finish off by reminding you that this Friday at 9 p.m., my good friend Dr. James Randolph and I will have another live broadcast of Digging Deeper, where he will be asking me questions about this episode of Inside Jimbo's Head. And yes, you can ask your questions as well. I know you have tons of them. So, come to the Hello Jimbo Speaking Facebook page this Friday at 9 p.m. and join us. You can also come to the Hello Jimbo Speaking YouTube channel. Better yet, sign up on the Facebook page for us to live stream this on your Facebook page as well. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Really, consider becoming a support partner at either the $0.99, or $9.90 monthly level. And check out the Hello Jimbo Speaking webpage at jimbospeaking.org. So, until next week, you go out there. And by God's grace, you make it a great day that honors and glorifies him through the faith that produces obedience. Do not settle for anything less, for Father settles for nothing less. No more excuses. Right, guys? See you next week. 